From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting today talking about an update that we got earlier from the Health Minister of BC. That is Health Minister Adrian Dix. Well, um, what this process does is gives us uh, um, some very specific numbers about how many people have asked to have a family doctor. And those are real people connecting with us, involved in the system, and we got to do a better job connecting to them while they wait to be attached to a family doctor, I think. But, but that, work, um, that work has gone on. Uh, and that gives us real numbers with real people. That was Health Minister Adrian Dix earlier today. Joining me now is Richard Zussman, Global News reporter based at the Legislature. Richard, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jill. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for coming on the show. That was actually the Health Minister responding to one of your questions, trying to get a better idea about exactly how many British Columbians are still without a primary doctor, without a family doctor. What else did he say about that and about what the province is doing about that? Yeah, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. So my best sense is that there are around 850 to 900,000 British Columbians without a family doctor. But the province has made significant inroads in terms of attaching more people to family doctors. But the challenge is that we have a growing population uh, and more demand for the healthcare system. So there's a few things at play here. And the province provided a lot of numbers this morning. I joked on BC1 that we know Adrian Dix is fluent in English and French, but his primary language are numbers. <laughs> and he provided a lot of them this morning. And... Uh, there's a few different elements. So there's the Health Connect registry that the province announced. And if you're listening now and you don't have a family doctor, I encourage you to register through Health Connect registry if you're looking for a family doctor through the BC Ministry of Health website. And there are 275,000 people who have registered through there. But there's no guarantee specifically that you will get a family doctor. There's also been an overhaul in terms of the new uh, payment structure for family doctors. We know that 80% of family doctors have signed up for that. And through this program, more than 243,000 patients have been connected to family physicians. But it doesn't mean those are necessarily people that didn't have a family doctor before. All of that being said, the province has also added uh, somewhere in the ballpark of around 700 family physicians. Those could be doctors who moved from other parts of the healthcare system to become a family doctor, but we're now up to about 5,000 family physicians in the province. So there's a little bit of you know numbers, people moving around, but we still have a huge number of people in BC that don't have a doctor. And the question I was really trying to get at is, should we change our expectations here that the reality is for a lot of people, even if you put your name on a list, you may never be connected with a family doctor. and You need to figure out ways around that through our healthcare system. And did the health minister address that, that clearly putting more money at the problem is not going to solve it? If we continue doing what we've been doing, that's not going to answer the, the questions, get doctors to all British Columbians, as yeah. we see the population continuing to grow as well. Did he address that? We might have to change the model, change the way we go about it. He did. And, and part of the focus continues to be on these urgent primary care centres. Uh, there's a focus on nurse practitioners. Uh, the province has attempted to shift 
uh, a, a bit of the burden. So if you need to get prescriptions for a number of different things, you can now do that through a pharmacy. So you don't need to go to your family doctor to do that. That should hypothetically clear up family doctors to take on more patients, to do more things. But all of that takes time. Uh, but there's not an acknowledgement yet. You know, we'll, you know, you and I are both old enough now, Joe, to remember uh, when the previous government promised uh, a doctor for everyone, that everyone in B.C. would have a family doctor. And that clearly at the time uh, was not a possible promise. And based on our population growth, uh, is not possible now. One thing that's happening, you know, a few different things. Obviously, the new medical school that will be coming eventually to Surrey uh, is a big part in all of this. BC has a tremendously high success rate in terms of training doctors and keeping them here in BC, much higher than Alberta, where you see a lot of doctors trained in Alberta and then moving here. And the other piece in all this is foreign credentialing. We know that the province is focused in on fast-tracking uh, credentials, especially for doctors and nurses and healthcare workers, because we have such a shortage on our system. Uh, that takes time, though, as well. So it's not an immediate, you know, you're trained somewhere else. You can now walk into be a family doctor here in B.C. Those will address some of it. But I think part of it is there needs to be a mentality shift here that, you know, you may not have a family doctor, even though you want one, and you need to find other ways to connect through the system. And those ways can be time consuming and complicated and um, only deal with sort of part of the issue and, and that's, that's something that's very hard to wrap your head around, especially when you need medical attention. I know he was also asked about specialists, and we've ta- had Dr. Kevin McLeod on this program. Uh, he was with us uh, just a few days ago and talked about how he, you know, in, in a two-day span, I think it was, had 54 referrals, and that getting to the point where he is not seeing people in the way, in the timely manner that the healthcare system is supposed to work. Uh, he has talked about team care, uh, physicians' assistance, ways that could actually access that. Did the, did the health minister, has he addressed that at all? Yeah, so the issue with physician assistance is we don't train them here in B.C., and there aren't a lot available. But based on uh, conversations that I have had, physician's assistance seems to be a great solution if we could find people to provide that work. So that's one of the things that the province has now allowed after pressure from Dr. McLeod and from the media and from others. But the reality is there just aren't enough people trained in order to do that. Uh, We know that people are waiting too long. We know that people have more complex needs. And one of the issues, obviously, we're doing more MRIs, Jill, than we've ever done in B.C., but it's not enough. It's not keeping up with the demand. And post-COVID, we are seeing people with, Uh, more complex needs because they may have missed appointments during the height of the pandemic and that has led to more complicated referrals and that takes more time from doctors and the fact that we're doing more MRIs but but not being able to keep up should be concerning to people because what then happens is you get delayed in getting the next step of care and then when you do get that next step of care if if you wait too long it's often more complex. And you can't really move on with that healthcare journey until you get the MRI and doctors have a full sense of what's going on with you. So the solutions are challenging. That there is There are resources being thrown at this, Jill. There are new strategies being put into all of this, but implementing it all uh, is, is proving to be, you know, I think the challenge everyone expected, but... Uh, not we're not making the inroads I think that many would hope in terms of uh, getting getting more people attached, reducing wait times, even though we're putting in huge amounts of resources 
uh, to help solve those problems. All right, Richard, thank you for this. I know there'll be more coming up on the news hour at six. We'll be covering it here on the station and this show as well. But thank you so much for this. Appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Have a good show. We know there is going to be a big parade. This is happening on Sunday. Not talking about Super Bowl. We are talking about the Lunar New Year. And you may have seen some road closures if you've been in the Vancouver area. This is the Spring Festival Parade, which is taking place on Sunday. But some groups say they feel they have been excluded from Vancouver's Lunar New Year Parade, which is being held again this weekend. Joining me to talk more about this is Melody Ma, community activist and organizer organizer of Chinatown Together. Melody, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me on today. This, so this is this something that your group has participated in before? No, this is our first time. We were really excited to be invited to apply. And then after initial rejection, uh, we were accepted and we were so excited to debut as Chinatown Together at this biggest festival in Chinatown every year. I, I, I want to back up a little bit. I should have asked you this first. What exactly is Chinatown Together? Yeah, Chinatown Together, uh, we organize intergenerational arts and culture events in Chinatown that is free, inclusive, and accessible to everybody. Our goal is to really use culture as a way to push against gentrification in Chinatown um, and to be able to practice our heritage and culture in place. So we've organized everything from kung fu workshops to making sweet dumplings, winter solstice, and even comedy open mics, all in public spaces in Chinatown. All right. And so you were excited and looking forward to taking part in the parade and in the celebration of Lunar New Year. So how did that go then as far as applying or or wanting to be part of the celebrations? Yeah, so we were actually invited to apply to be a uh, part of the parade. And so we applied, um, stating who we are as Chinatown Together. And then we got a rejection letter initially. Um, it didn't have any reasons on why we were rejected. I did get a phone call from the organizers saying that they wanted to see society registration. So we did provide all the papers uh, for society registration of our parent organization, even though society registration was not in anywhere of the application application process or the rules and regulations. Um, and we were we, we got invited afterwards to participate. And we had a banner making event with over 40 members of young and old in the Chinatown community. We spent 12 hours making these beautiful banners that say Chinatown together and springtime spirit brings new life. Um, and we were so excited to to showcase this to the public as part of the parade. Um, and then the morning after that uh, banner making event, I woke up to a letter saying that our position got rescinded and we were rejected again. But this time it was uh, what they say, quote unquote, it's essential to underscore that political activism finds no place within the spirit of this event. And we were just baffled, like what political activism are they mentioning about? None of our banners um, have anything to do with politics. And we were very adamant to our attendees that if they were going to march with us, everything had to follow the parade's rules and regulations. So we're quite shocked and disappointed that uh, we we can't be part of the parade. Um, and another group that represents queer and trans people in Chinatown also were rejected from the parade and banned from walking it for apparently administrative reasons. 
which I mean, a, a, there's a lot going on there. And, and first, the first thing that kind of struck me was if you're invited to apply for something, generally speaking, that's that's meaning, I mean, when you kind of read between the lines of that, if somebody invites you to apply, it, it generally means, well, we want you to be part of this event. So here's the application. Just fill this out and, and we'll go ahead and we'll move forward. Yeah, it's quite fascinating because the organizing committee of this parade is actually composed of six organizations, um, such as the Chinese Benevolent Association of Vancouver, the Chinese Cultural Center, the Chinese Chinatown Merchants Association, Success Freemasons and Shawnee Benevolent Society. Um, and what's interesting about these organizations is that they've been public about the uh, pro-gentrification of Chinatown through a gentrifier building called 105 Kiefer by BD Development. Um, and uh, they've written a public letter saying that they, they support the gentrification of Chinatown through 105 Kiefer. And it's no secret that Chinatown Together was birthed out of the resisting of uh, gentrification in Chinatown through cultural events. Um, but we knew that these organizations were the part of the organizing committee, but we said, you know what, we're going to put politics aside for this day because this is a community-wide celebration and we're going to apply uh, regardless of that. But What's interesting is that by kicking us out because of political activism, whatever that means, um, they are inherently politicizing this event. Right, because and you brought up as well 105 Kiefer, which which people might remember. There has been a lot of debate over that development or or uh, the the different development proposals that have come forward, or I suppose not so different. It was the same uh, proposal that came back, but uh, the the building that was proposed for that site. Uh, so, would you would you consider the group Chinatown Together a, a politically uh, activist group? We are, our mandate is to create arts and cultural events to um, to push back against gentrification in Chinatown. So if you come to any of our events, we're, you know, having tea and painting lanterns and koi fish. Uh, we're singing karaoke. We're making sweet dumplings. And if people consider practicing your culture in place in Chinatown is politically uh, active and political activism, then then so be it. But from our perspective, we're really just trying to practice our culture that is being erased rapidly um, within our, our heritage neighborhood right now. So if you had been uh, permitted to be part or your application had been accepted to be part of the parade on Sunday, if any member of your group had shown up with a banner or shown up with something that made reference to 105 Kiefer or gentrification, would they have been allowed to participate? We were very adamant that we wanted to follow the parade rules and we were told that uh, anything that is showcased must be about uh, community togetherness and unification, cohesion, and celebrating the spring. Um, so if you look at our banners, uh, they're very much about the year of the dragon, um, celebrating how springtime brings new life and community togetherness. Um, and we were very mindful of letting community members know that we wanted to follow the parade's rules and regulations. And you mentioned the other group, an LGBTQ plus group that also uh, had their application, uh, that one for, for given different reasons, but had their application rejected. Have you talked to that group at all or, or heard how that group feels about uh, also being excluded? 
Yeah, they actually uh, put out a statement um, at Queer Lunar New Year on Instagram that is quite extensive, and and they're equally as disappointed as us. Uh, what's really interesting is that the uh, the organizing committee of the parade actually sent out a letter uh, yesterday, a statement saying that how they evaluate groups is based on different criteria, and one of the criteria is whether they are safe and inclusive. So my question is, like, are they really Really saying that queer people and trans people and youth and fixed income seniors in Chinatown are unsafe and not inclusive. Um, so it, it's just fascinating to to see uh, what these parade organizers are putting out when simply we just want to march in a parade with a banner saying uh, dancing dragons embracing rainbows. Where do things go from here then as, as far as the, the applications were not accepted? So is that the end of it? There's, there's no appeal or that's it that you won't be able to participate on Sunday? We actually sent a note to the uh, organizing committee after we got our last rejection letter saying like we spent so much time and so much heart in the community to put these banners together, look at the photos of our banners, and we were met with complete silence. Um, so instead, what we're going to do is we're still going to showcase these beautiful banners to the public on parade day. So we're going to do a showcase of the banners. And if folks want to join in solidarity with us, uh, they're welcome to and find more of uh, information about this on Instagram at Chinatown Together. Will you tr- hopefully reapply next year or or try and, and come to some kind of an agreement so that your, your organization and other groups that have been rejected this year could participate in future years? I mean, we'll be open to it. This event, the celebration, it, uh, means so much to so many of us. I grew up dancing um, in Mimi Ho's Strathcona Chinese Dance um, Company that had a massive delegation every year, and I danced in it every day growing up. And the reason why I'm still engaged in Chinatown is because of those memories I formed dancing in the parade. So I want others to be able to to do the same and put politics really aside for this day to, to march in the parade and celebrate community together at large because at the end of the day it's about the next generation it's about our children it's about the youth that is going to sustain chinatown and sustain the culture um and by cutting off the youth by cutting off gender diverse people you are essentially cutting off your heritage and culture from being passed on to the next generation Melody Ma, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for coming on the show. And like you said, I know uh, people will still see your group and see the banners on Sunday, not officially part of the parade, but still out there. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me today. We understand, Homer. After all, we are from the land of chocolate. Mmm, the land of chocolate. Ah, yes, that was Homer Simpson dreaming of a land of chocolate. He then goes on to run through it and has a great time. The reason we are listening to that, it is not great news when it comes to the land of chocolate. Soaring prices have put the future of chocolate, well, it looks like an expensive future. Joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Sylvain Charlebois, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I don't know that we've ever had you come on the show following a Homer Simpson clip before, but there you go. It's a, it's a fun Friday. 
I, w- I, I would have picked a Willy Wonka, oh, yes. but hey, <laughs> it works. <laughs> yes, good call. Uh, this is uh, El Nino, the impact on West African cocoa farmers, uh, soaring prices. What do we know about why the price of chocolate is going up? Well, I mean, essentially, the market is panicking right now. Uh, I mean, chocolate is a an important commodity, obviously, for uh, for the confectionery business. Uh, the Ivory Coast, was, which is by far the largest producer of cocoa in the world, they produce about 45, 50% of, of all the cocoa in the world. They're affected by a drought. And nobody really knows for sure how extensive the damage will be. So there's lots of speculation in the air, but the speculation is just intense. My goodness. <laughs> this week, where I mean, right now, a kilo of cocoa is, uh, a pound of cocoa, sorry, is, uh, is over 550 US, which is, uh, we've never seen this before. So the rally is pretty intense and it's pushing prices higher. So, I mean, if you're looking to buy, uh, chocolate for your loved one uh, for St. Valentine's Day, that's not going to impact you. But I'm thinking perhaps Easter, uh, over the summer, in the fall, Christmas. I mean, those are the, those are the holidays that are likely going to be impacted by what's happening right now. Huh. So when you say for a pound of chocolate, then it's sitting around $5.50 U.S., what would a, a, a more normal uh, price or more expected, what would we normally pay for that? Oh, it's less than half. Huh. Yeah, so yeah, so for futures should be at least half, if not lower. Uh, but I was actually, before our call today, I was actually looking at retail prices in Canada because we actually track food prices extensively and uh, if you look at chocolate prices in Canada in general retail since December 1st uh, those prices are up about 7.5% already as of today so in the last couple of months so my guess is that it's not going to go it's not get lower it's going to get higher so if you love chocolate especially dark chocolate with with uh, 100% cocoa for example those are the products that are being impacted. For chocolate milk, less so. Right, okay. I mean, does anyone really love the 90-plus the, uh, percent cocoa? Kind of feels like you're eating health food, doesn't it? I do. I know, I'm joking. <laughs> well, it, it, comes, it comes over with a nice glass of wine, as that's, far as I'm concerned. I don't know. Like, everyone has their own favorite chocolate, I guess. Some people like white chocolate, which is not even chocolate. <laughs> Good point. So will that even be impacted by this? Uh, no, I don't think so. But, uh, but the, this rally, I mean, there are two ingredients that are concerning right now uh, on world markets. Cocoa is one. The other one is sugar. And let me tell you, a lot of products have both sugar and cocoa. So that's why I think a lot of manufacturers out there are shopping around for ingredients and they're trying to lock prices as quickly as possible because you see when they actually commit to buying, they commit over three months, six months. So my guess is that they're going to go along uh, as much as possible, given what's going on right now. And is it also seeing the price of sugar going up as well? Is that also because of drought and because of weather conditions or are the other, other, other factors there? Uh, I mean, this rally is driven by what's going on in the Ivory Coast, for sure. I mean, uh, it's all over the news. Uh, it's It's clearly affecting 
world markets. Uh, the, the thing about cocoa production is that most farmers aren't like our own farmers. They're not well equipped to deal with stuff like climate change. Uh, there's not a whole lot of research to make sure that yields go up every year. That's the problem with uh, uh, with productions like cocoa, coffee is another one, bananas. We often talk about bananas and droughts and pests. And so those are productions that are highly vulnerable due to the fact that they are grown in areas of the world where there's not a whole lot of wealth, knowledge, and research and science. Hmm, interesting. Uh, my guest is Sylvain mm-hmm. Charlebois, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Uh, Sylvain, you mentioned sugar, cocoa, like you say, we watch coffee and bananas. This seems also kind of similar to not too, too long ago when we were talking about vanilla and the price of vanilla was off the charts. It had become so expensive. Yeah. Are, are we seeing more and more of these crops that are so concentrated in, in certain areas that if, if this weather does have an impact, it, it has a worldwide impact well a lot of these commodities are grown around the equator and why they're grown around the equator they need stability (laughs) they need a climate to be stable but because of climate change well climate is not all that stable which is why right now some of these crops are disrupted by by mother nature so obviously there's more attention given to to that right now uh but Will it, will it actually influence prices over the long term? Uh, probably not. Uh, you've heard of the term skimflation, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if cocoa is too expensive, my guess is that some manufacturers will start replacing cocoa with uh, a cheaper alternative that may taste like cocoa. And so that, that's that often with vanilla, that's exactly what happens. Uh, if vanilla prices go up, manufacturers will actually replace vanilla with something cheaper, an artificial ingredient. So it may actually be the same thing with cocoa. And then the whatever it is that you're purchasing with real cocoa, like people that buy vanilla will know, if you're still seeking out the, the pure vanilla and the real stuff, it is much more expensive than the, the, uh, the other kind. Exactly. I mean, if you're a baker or you're someone using vanilla or, or cocoa, I mean, are you going to raise prices right now? I mean, a lot of people don't uh, take exception to increasing prices these days. So a lot of people are concerned. This is why this this whole greenflation campaign was was a bit concerning because if you continue to accuse companies of gouging, and and, and frankly, I was in Ottawa this week displaying all the data we have, and there is no evidence of gouging. Well, companies will start... You know, changing ingredients, making sure they don't change prices as much as possible because they don't want to be targeted. Hmm. So do you think that we're going to see, and when you mentioned as well off the top, that we're already seeing the price of cocoa up 7.5%, is that directly because of what's happening in the Ivory Coast and the weather? Or was it already going up because, like we've seen with, with most foods, we've seen inflation and the prices going up? Oh, no. We've been watching cocoa futures for a while now, for about two, three months. So this is not new. An increase in price is not new. But the intensity of the rally this week is is unusual. I mean, it just, the last couple of weeks, uh, futures just skyrocketed. Like, really, we've never, because... Uh, about, just before the holidays, uh, cocoa futures were close, were flirting with an all-time high. Now they just, the whole time I is like now. 
Hmm. Like it, it just closed on Friday today, and uh, it's it is a record high by far. So again, the advice that you gave off the top was it probably won't we won't see a huge spike if you're somebody that buys chocolates for Valentine's Day or around that time of year. Not a huge, huge impact. But moving forward from there, that's when we're going to see the prices really go up or, like you said, see suppliers perhaps swapping out or using different ingredients. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're out there buying chocolate for your loved one and you see a bunny, a chocolate bunny rabbit for Easter, I might grab it. (laughs) It may get more expensive. (laughs) All right. Well, that is good advice. And Sylvain, I didn't mean to uh, offend you or suggest that your taste in chocolate, it's it's simply more refined, more refined than mine is. It's chocolate. How serious can that be? (laughs) (laughs) Very, very true. Well, thank you so much, Sylvan. Always great to have you on the show and good advice for anybody if they are looking to stockpile and avoid those higher prices. Thanks so much for being with us. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.